The following Dharma talk was given by monastic Shoan Ankele at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shoan is a Dharma holder in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is given free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thank you for listening. Good afternoon, everybody. This is from the teachings of Wang Bo, Transmission of Mind. The Buddhas and all living beings are only one mind. There is no other reality. This mind from beginninglessness has never been born and never passed away. It is neither blue nor yellow. It has no shape and no form. It does not belong to existence or non-existence. It does not count as new or old. It is neither long nor short, neither large nor small. It transcends all limiting measurements all labels, all traces, all oppositions. This very being is it. When you stir your thoughts, you turn away from it. It is like space, which has no boundaries and cannot be measured. I wanted to use this as a point of entry to um, reflect a little bit on letting go of our idea of progress and perhaps shift where we put our energy into the realm of nurturing faith. Wang Po is a 9th century Chan master. He was the successor of uh, Master Bai Zhang and the teacher of Master Lin Qi. So he is a um, notable, worthy among our ancestors. And this teaching on transmission of mind is, um, was written down, who was studying under him. Um, for day and night, the, the preface to the teaching says that he managed to set down just, just maybe one-fifth of what the Master had taught him. And I guess, um, well, progress is a funny thing in spiritual practice because if we didn't think that there was progress, why would we be here? We are looking for some kind of shift or change, some kind of progress. But then the teachings say, and sooner or later we see for ourselves that to pursue or um, try and make this change happen, like just doesn't work. 
It doesn't work. We've probably had the experience, I would guess everyone here, of having a a moment or an experience within your meditation practice that felt like, oh, yes. And then trying to keep it or get it back, or this happened last session, so like maybe this session that'll happen again, but like maybe better, because this time I can do it sooner. And we plot and strategize and fail. Fail, 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 fail. And there is um, a, a high rate of attrition, I think, among Zen students because there's a you have to, like, basically rescind all hope. (laughs) But what do we gain when we do that? And again, trapped a little bit by language, there's no gain. But what feeds us? What do we discover when we do that? Even the thought of progress on a very mundane level is... um, sort of, I think, tainted nowadays. I mean, if you think about sort of progress in the conventional sense, it's quite clear that, like, despite much progress, um, the world is burning on fire ever more uh, stridently and frighteningly. And for all of our conventional progress, we seem to have very little to show for it in terms of actual happiness, peace of mind, connection joy. So let's just like take it and release it. No one is going to make any progress for the rest of session. (laughs) Really. So now what? Now what? Here we are. We're right in the belly of the session. We've got a whole afternoon and evening and night and early morning and a whole day. No progress. Mm, Finally, we can relax. There is a kind of a sublime beauty to not making progress. And at the same time, we're here for a reason. We're not just sitting here. We are just sitting here. We are. We are just sitting here. That's the practice. So, mm, strange, wonderful. In our um, Mountains and Rivers Order mission statement, The first, the opening paragraph reads, the Mountains and Rivers Order exists to provide training and practice in Zen Buddhism and the Bodhisattva path for priests, monastics, and lay practitioners based upon the realization of the enlightened way as transmitted from Shakyamuni Buddha through successive generations to this place and time. So this dharma that's been transmitted, this transmission of mind, this mind 
from beginninglessness has never been born and never passed away. It is neither blue nor yellow, has no shape or form. It does not belong to existence or non-existence. It does not count as new or old. It is neither long nor short, neither large nor small. It transcends all limiting measurements, all labels, all traces, all oppositions. And this very being is it. When you stir your thoughts, you turn away from it. It is like space, which has no boundaries and cannot be measured. Another translation, that's Thomas Cleary's translation. John Blofeld writes, translates, it is that which you see before you. Begin to reason about it, and you at once fall into error. It is like the boundless void, which cannot be fathomed or measured. So any effort to measure or judge or compare or grab hold or once and for all clear up this matter is doomed. And we can also recognize that for what it is. It's our habit energy honed over our lifetime or longer. There is no arriving. So when we let go of that idea, where do we find ourselves? And yet, it is a path. And yet, how we apply ourselves does have an effect. This is the field of practice. This is what we're here to do. One of the ways that we learn to um, train in discovering this mind is wholehearted practice, wholeheartedness, (laughs) wholehearted sitting, We're just sitting, right? You're not like sitting and like reading when you feel like reading. You're not like pulling out a book and checking out a few passages or sitting and like, I don't know, going online or like sitting and having a conversation like, hey, hey, you know, yeah, you know, we don't do that. We just sit. That's very wholehearted sitting. I remember when I first, well, not first first, but in early years of practice, you know, I was like trying to understand what was going on and so observing and and sort of receiving the transmission in a very real sense from my, you know, Dharma siblings who were more seasoned in practice than me. And um, I definitely got the thing about like wholeheartedness. And, um, you know, there would be the like the sort of like the vigorous activity that would happen during caretaking. And um, and uh, of course, we used to run to the dokes online. That's been talked about. But like you would like leap up from your seat and tear back to the dokes online. Um, And that was definitely a manifestation of, of wholeheartedness. 
Um, and I do remember this, this one particular time. It was caretaking, the end of caretaking, and we used to mow everything with push mowers. So there was like a lot of lawn mowing going on, a lot of people like mowing the lawn with like little push mowers. And um, at the end, you always had to stop early enough to like thoroughly clean out the underneath of the lawnmower. And that was like very wholehearted. And I remember like being on the lawn, the lawn mowing team, and we were like, it was the end of caretaking, it was probably like hot and humid, everyone's like sweaty and sticky and like pieces of grass are like sticking to you. And um, it was actually Kusan, for those of you who know Kusan, like had the lawnmower like <clears throat> up onto these buckets so he could really get underneath there. And all of a sudden there was this like stench of shit. And like we looked underneath and like cat shit or some kind of shit had been like whipped like in a thick coating all underneath the lawnmower. And I was like kind of appalled and Kusan just like went in there, man. <laughs> And like, just like wholeheartedly like swabbed all that shit out. And I was just like, wow, very inspired by that. <laughs> In a different vein, uh, probably, mm, I don't know, a couple of years ago, maybe more recently than that, um, it, was, it was at a time when Shugen Roshi was I'm taking a few days off of the training schedule to do a solo retreat. And um, something had come up uh, at the monastery where we were going to need to interrupt his solo retreat. And so he said to, to me and Hojin and Gokan, that's fine, just you know, come over during caretaking. So we like headed over to the abbacy and we got there and like Shugen was like, had like, I, I think like a dust buster or something and was like, vacuuming and da 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 and he was like saw us coming and like put it away and we all like got on with our meeting and then like later I was talking to Gokhan and I was like what was up with the dust buster and Gokhan was like yeah I think he was doing caretaking it was caretaking time and there was something so like uh wholehearted right about like he's the abbot He's like off schedule, he's like doing a solo retreat and decides that during caretaking, well, he's gonna do some caretaking. Thank you for that. So, you know, along the way, we're bound to have to tussle with discouragement, but we should really recognize discouragement for what it is. It's a habit. It's a habit. Pretty much um, one of the great things about Zazen is that we have a chance to recognize all our habits and to start to see more and more and more deeply, like, yeah, it's all habits. It's all habits and tendencies. Not all, all, but like, 90% probably. So discouragement's a habit. So is ambition. So is like irritation or self-doubt. So is laziness or numbing out, checking out. So is like being really critical of others or yourself. 
So is complaining. And the list goes on. So many habits. So many habits. The other day I was noticing uh, that like, I have this like, um, control habit. Like, I'll, I'll sort of start to like plan something. I'll just be like engaging my practice and then like whoop, all of a sudden I'm like planning something, you know, like, I don't know, something to do with work. And um, the other day, finally, I became curious in this. I've always just understood that as like, yeah, well, I have things going on and they're going to arise in my mind. But the other day I became curious about like, wait, what is going on with this like, like all of a sudden the most important thing to do right now, not contemplate the great matter, but actually plan what's happening for Ango on Sunday. Like, no, no, it's, it's not. So like what's, what's happening in that moment where like I veer off and I feel very um, compelled and even a little bit, you know, justified in like taking care of that planning mental activity. And I saw like, oh, there's a quality of anxiety that is manifesting at these moments. Subtle, a groundless quality that's like not at ease with that, that's like whoosh, trying to gain a foothold, get some traction. So this is like very helpful to me because now I can see when that arises, what's going on? And I can much more effectively practice creating a capacity to be with that groundless quality, ease, ease my way in, rather than just be like, wow, why am I thinking about work again? So there's this quality of recognition we need to be able to see what's happening in our mind. And then there's the quality of like looking more deeply. So recognizing, okay, I'm like planning again. And then looking more deeply to see like what, what's going on? What's, what's underneath that? Irritation for me is often linked with fear or anxiety. If I notice that things are really irritating me, I can look and see like, oh, what am I anxious? Oh, my talk. I'm anxious about my talk. And so then we can go from looking more deeply at that level to looking more, more, more deeply, especially as our mind settles, like in the container of Sishin. Because at the deepest level, we see what Huang Po is talking about. There is no other reality, just this one mind. Getting in touch with groundlessness can be scary because we're so, uh, I don't know, we, 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 we think we have a security in our um, present state. We think we know who we are. At least it's familiar to us. At the very least, it's familiar to us. And when that starts to get shaken, we can get um, anxious or upset. I remember year, a few years ago, 
um, we were studying the Heart Sutra, and um, I was at the temple, and Shugen Roshi was leading a, a study session on the Heart Sutra that was open to, to anyone. And there was a woman who was there for the first time, um, had found her way there and, and had taken her seat. And um, the, the, the teaching began, and I was sitting in the back as a monitor, uh, you know, not in a formal sense, but just to make sure everyone was okay. And this woman, um, a little ways in, not long in, I don't know, 10 minutes or less, like got up and started to walk out. So like being a good monitor, I like got up to follow her and be like, are you okay? And she was like, yeah, this is a little bit too much for me. I'm not ready. Which I really appreciated because I was like, wow, you are listening. Yeah, you were taking it in. I don't know what happened with her. So in Zazen, because we're not doing anything else, we can let that habit energy settle. And we, can, we, don't, we don't need to like sort it all out. We don't need to like figure it all out. When I speak about like looking more deeply, I'm not talking about like a one, you know, one-on-one me and me like psychotherapy session. I'm just like talking about like recognizing what's happening. And then um, to uh, be, be with that. We say in Zen sometimes um, not dwelling. This is, I think, a um, attempt to speak about what it is when we are uh, letting go of our sense of self and letting go into the flow of the present experience. Not dwelling. So if I'm um, planning or being irritated by something, I'm like very like, you know, I've got my like claws hooked in, right? I'm kind of like grinding around in there. <laughs> when I see what's happening and make space for it, then I can just be in the experience as it's unfolding. And just that in and of itself is uh, opening. It, it, it's going to change my experience. And if I can maintain that non-dwelling, just being present, things may open further. This is relaxation. It's not about progress. It's about cultivating faith and trust in our own capacity to be with ourselves and our experience. Our habits are so deeply embedded. They're so woven, woven in it can be extremely difficult to shift them. So having some um, faith that that is possible and having a practice of presence, of returning, being with our breath in the midst of that experience without suppressing or trying to shut it out, 
Noticing what is happening. Not dwelling. Thich Nhat Hanh says, in order to transform samsara into nirvana, we need to look deeply and see clearly that both are manifestations of our own consciousness. When we stop struggling against what we're experiencing, the experience changes. And at its sort of full fruition, we're talking about the struggle of samsara and the experience having changed into one of freedom. And Yunnan spoke about emptiness yesterday. So this is all possible because everything is empty. And um, Thich Nhat Hanh uses interbeing as another word for speaking about emptiness, but it has wonderful qualities because that suggests that we're not talking about a, a great dark pit that's <laughs> like scary and unappealing, as, as Yunan was saying. But of course, when we say interbeing, we can start to like understand it more in our ordinary way because we have an ordinary way of un understanding interdependence. Anyway, however we talk about it is going to fall short. So. So I wanted to share this little piece because um, I think that there's a teaching on not making progress, but instead cultivating faith that is um, quite beautiful. And, um, you know, Pema Chodron has a, has a nice phrase. She says, if we commit ourselves to staying right where we are, then our experience becomes very vivid. And when we speak about emptiness, you know, sometimes it's helpful to have some of these other words brought in to describe the nature of mind. So luminous is one of those words. Our experience becomes very vivid. This is from um, Annie Dillard's Teaching a Stone to Talk. The island where I live is peopled with cranks like myself, in a cedar shake shack on a cliff, but we all live like this, is a man in his 30s who lives alone with a stone he is trying to teach to talk. Wisecracks on this topic abound, as you might expect, but they are made, as it were, perfunctorily, and mostly by the young. For in fact, almost everyone here respects what Larry is doing, as do I, which is why I'm protecting his or her privacy and confusing you for the details. It could be, for instance, a pinch of sand he is teaching to talk, or a prolonged northerly, or any one of a number of waves. But it is, in fact, I assure you, a stone. It is, for I have seen it, a palm-sized oval beach cobble whose dark gray is cut by a band of white which runs around and presumably through it. Such stones we call wishing stones for reasons obscure, but not, I think, unimaginable. He keeps it on a shelf. Usually the stone lies protected by a square of untanned leather, like a canary asleep under its cloth. 
Larry removes the cover for the stone's lessons, or more accurately, I should say, for the ritual or rituals which they perform together several times a day. No one knows what goes on at these sessions, least of all myself, for I know Larry but slightly, and that owing only to a mix-up in our mail. I assume that like any other meaningful effort, the ritual involves sacrifice, the suppression of self-consciousness, and a certain precise tilt of the will, so that the will becomes transparent and hollow, a channel for the work. I wish him well. It is noble work and beats from any angle, selling shoes. Reports differ on precisely what he expects or wants the stone to say. I do not think he expects the stone to speak as we do and describe for us its long life and many or few sensations. I think instead that he is trying to teach it to say a single word, such as cup or uncle. <laughs> For this purpose, he has not, as some have seriously suggested, carved the stone a little mouth or furnished it in any way with a pocket of air which it might expel. Rather, and I think he is wise in this, he plans to initiate his son, who is now an infant living with Larry's estranged wife, into the work so that it may continue and bear fruit after his death. To teach a stone to talk, this to me seems very much of a piece with a sangha, right? Coming down the mountain from uh, trying to have a vision of Maitreya and running into those successive um, uh, people. This is like an antidote to discouragement. To teach a stone to talk, to just sit with no hope of progress, letting go of that, but to do it wholeheartedly, completely committed. Over vacation, Gokhan and I watched this documentary called The Dawn Wall about the um, uh, world-famous uh, rock climber Tommy Caldwell and his um, extreme effort to climb this like never before climbed section of El Capitan, the Dawn Wall, which was never climbed because it's like impossible. And um, it was it was it was a, a fun a fun film to watch and uh, totally like talk about like someone being so wholehearted. It took him like years, six or seven years um, to like find the route and like, just like to do everything that needed to do, they needed to do before they spent like the three or four weeks actually climbing it. He did it with, with a partner. And um, that kind of wholehearted practice, I mean, the other interesting detail about it, which they, they take some time to, to mention in the film is that he, was just had just ended a, uh, a relationship, a significant relationship. I think they were married, and um, was totally heartbroken. Um, his his partner had fallen in love with someone else, 
and sort of threw himself into this as a way of healing. And um, uh, they don't spend like a lot of time analyzing whether it worked or not, but you sort of see the evidence because during that time, he meets someone else and falls in love and they have a child. And also his um, former partner appears in the film um, quite, quite a bit. So they seem like they're on good terms. Um, but you know, the part that really touched me the most is at the end of the whole film, while the credits are rolling, there's one of these things where they, there's like the credits are rolling and then there's like the little box of extra footage. And it's his child who looks to be about two, less than three, a little toddler. And it looks like, you know, it appears that his mom um, is, is filming and she's, she's filming him. He's like this little chunky guy um, trying to like climb up this rock that's like this big and, you know, round and curved. And he's like reaching and like trying to get his little like leg up there and push down. He keeps falling down and you can hear his mom being like, come on. Come on, you can do it, you can do it. And he like topples over and then he gets up again and the credits are rolling. And it is just a total um, delight. It's a total delight. It's like that kind of um, effort. So when we, when we see that we're in a, 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 a rut or a dark place or a neurotic turn of mind, that's fine. That's like fine. It's what happens next, right? What do we do with that? Do we perpetuate the habit? Do we like lay like blame and judgment on top of it? Are we trying to like wrench ourselves out or create another state of mind? None of those is considered, um, well, I don't need to tell you this. You've, that's what we all try at first and it doesn't work so great. So rather, rather to, um, to recognize that how we relate to our own struggle is directly going to affect what happens next. Because that's how cause and effect works, and it's all cause and effect. It's all habit energy. So noticing what's happening, and then relating to it not according to habit. Being with. There is a um, pith instruction from Patrol Rinpoche. Don't try to adjust or improve or to block or cultivate anything. Allow whatever occurs to unfold and settle into it directly. This is very subtle, how to do this. That um, certain precise tilt of the will that Annie Dillard speaks of. To be here because we believe or have faith in the possibility of liberation that we have found or are at least open to finding, perhaps here to explore and discover whether this style of practice is effective. 
to recognize what's happening in our mind, to look and see into it, what's happening underneath, what's going on, what's going on, to be with that underlying quality, not skipping over it. That's the gate. That's the gate. The gate is always here. It's always this. To nurture our faith in being with that experience just as it is without having to adjust or improve, without blocking or cultivating, allowing in the deepest way settling into directly. The next few lines of that passage from Wang Bo say this one mind is itself Buddha. Buddha and sentient beings are no different. It's just that sentient beings seek externally, grasping appearances, losing the more they seek. If you try to have Buddha seek Buddha or use mind to grasp mind, you will never succeed. What you don't realize is that if you stop thoughts and forget ruminations, the Buddha spontaneously appears. Blofeld translates that last line. They do not know that if they put a stop to conceptual thought and forget their anxiety, the Buddha will appear before them. That's the non-abiding. I appreciated Yunnan's comments yesterday that we are not trying to, um, like, create blank mind. But we're trying to see that when we stop creating, there's nothing there. And the stop creating is, see your habit, make a different choice. That's called freedom. Be inside your experience. Do not dwell. Do not abide. Do not seek for progress. Do not worry. Have faith. Trust. Nurture your trust. Trust yourself. Whatever arises, it's okay. It's not a problem. You don't need to fix it. Stay with it. Just stay with it. That's all. Trust. Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats, and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.